we're getting ready to, we've been working on a series in Exodus. Um, for those of you who have read through it before, um, you know, this is a pretty important, vital part of the Jewish tradition, and therefore it's a vital part of the Christian tradition. And for those who have a little bit of background in church, you've probably heard a lot of these stories. So, you know, as we go through, you know, I'm going to try to draw light to some things that I feel like are really the kind of the point, because as I have learned over my years that what I thought was the point as a kid turns out not to necessarily be so. But before we do anything, I'd like to pray. So why don't you join me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. God, we thank you most importantly that we could come into your presence today, that we could come here and worship you, to, to praise you. God, I know that not everybody's situation right now is great. And so, God, I just pray that you would humble our hearts, remind us of how grateful we should be in your presence. God, allow us to lay aside our circumstances, allow us to lay aside our problems, our worries, and come and worship you. Because, God, you have all things in your hand. Father, I ask that you would bless us today. Prepare our hearts for the message that you have. Prepare me, Father, as your vessel. Just allow me to glorify and lift up your son's name, Jesus Christ. And in which in him we pray, amen. So to catch everybody up um, who have not been here, um, we've been hitting the first two chapters of Exodus. And, and essentially, this is the story of Moses. Um, Moses was born in Egypt to a slave, and there was a mandate to kill all the boy babies. So his mother, in an effort to keep him, to protect him, made a small boat. We talked about the importance of that word that they used, uh, terak, which is the same word that means ark. And so she makes this tiny little boat, and she floats him to the river where he's found by the Pharaoh's daughter, raised as royalty. And for 40 years, Moses is treated as royalty. He is in the presence of the king of Egypt, who in... Egypt's religious beliefs is a god, a deity. So he's been in the presence of Egypt's god. And then Moses begins to understand that God has placed him in a position of power and begins to think about how he wants to be used and how God has planned to use him. And he sees wrongs that he feels like he needs to right. And instead of being patient and waiting on the Lord, he does what many of us do. He takes it into his own hands. And with his own strength, he tries to free the people of Egypt. He tries to free his Israelite friends and brothers and sisters and fails miserably and becomes an outcast, becomes a fugitive, has to leave. So the man who was a slave, who was brought to royalty, is now back in object poverty. And he wanders into the land of Midian, this grand wilderness in the northeast corner of Africa. And on his way there, God continues to use him. He runs across a well where he meets seven women who are trying to water their flock, who are attacked, and he stands in their place. And then not only does he protect them, but then he serves them by watering their flock for them. And eventually God blesses him with a bride from those ladies and a child from those ladies. And for the next 40 years, Moses is a shepherd. And he serves the Lord. And within those stories, we see some important themes. One of those themes throughout all of Exodus is going to be the theme of redemption. This is God's story about how he will redeem his people. The other one of these themes is that God's plan is God's plan. It's not your plan. It's not Moses' plan. It's his plan, and it's on his time. And so often are we tempted to intervene with that. We might know God's purpose, but be frustrated with God's timing. Now, I might lie to you. When you do the math, Moses is 80 years old right now. 
I'm not going to lie to you, most of us, I'm thinking by 80, we're pretty sure we're done with the work. We've put in a 80 years of good, solid work. For 40 years, he's a shepherd. You have to think that this is, this is what Moses' life's going to be, right? I feel like after 40 years, you would just come to terms like, I'm just going to be a shepherd. I'm not going to be a revolutionary. I'm not going to be another king of Egypt. I'm just going to be a shepherd. But God was using this time in the wilderness to prepare him for something that was important. We're going to look at some of these things that are key about why it's the shepherd and the, and the reality of what it means to be in the presence of the real God, the one true God. So I'm going to have my brother Mark come down. He's reading our passage today. If you want to join us in your Bible, you can in Exodus 3. We're just going to read the first 14 verses, 1 through 14 of Exodus 3. But I'll also have it on the screen for you if you'd like to read along. So as we see in this reading, Moses has been working for some time now as a shepherd for his brother-in-law. All the way to the right. It's on the plastic part, not on the screen. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> good job, Mark. Also, good job reading all those zites because there was a lot of them. And I think we were all were like amazed by your reading. Um, so J Moses has been working as a shepherd. And there's a couple key concepts that are really important to understand. First, Egyptians had the lowest of view of shepherds. Okay? Um, shepherds are a couple of things. Um, th they're really good at taking care of sheep. That's their job. They're very dedicated to their job. They often have to spend many, many, many nights caring for, sleeping with, keeping after sheep. Because sheep aren't known to be smart. Okay? 
Um, and shepherds are dirty. That's one of the things that they really, they just are. You're living with animals 24-7. You're going to smell. You're not going to be kind uh, to, to be in the presence of as far as, you know, how you look. You're going to look disheveled. And so Egyptians looked down on this particular skill set. This, this is a, a group of people that were very, very much treated with disdain amongst the Egyptian people. Um, so it is interesting that Moses had gone from the highest of positions, and it's important to understand, he literally was in the house of the God of Egypt. That was how deity-like pharaohs were. They were gods. That's how they were looked at. And Moses was in his house. He was in the very presence of the Egyptian God, and now he is the least of all the Egyptian things you could be. So he'd gone to the highest of marks, to the deepest of valleys. And those 40 years spent in the wilderness, surely there were times where he goes, man, like, my life did not turn out like I expected. I think we can all relate to that, right? Like, we've all had mountaintop moments. Like, we've all been, like, somewhere like that was a unique moment where we lived for just a small space. And one of the things I was told that I thought was really good was that those mountaintop moments can't last forever. Because think about it. If, if you go into a mountain, the higher you go, the less vegetation there's going to be, right? And there's even something that's called the, it's called the tree line. And if you go up a mountain high enough, there's a place where all the trees quit growing. They can't survive there. There's not enough nutrition. There's not enough oxygen. The soil becomes too acidic. And there's a reality that you can't survive there. Even though you can see and you have perspective that you've never had before, and it's wonderful, you could not survive there. You're not built for the mountaintop. And what's interesting is that in the valley, right, the lowest of places, there's abundance there. There's reasons why civilizations were built within valleys over and over again. Why the Mesopotamia was, so, was flourishing and had all of these empires constantly emerging from them. Because it was a valley. All the rain came to them. We grow the most in our lowest of places. That's where we're growing. So that we can go and get to places in the mountaintop. But we have to come back down. We can't stay there. Moses has been spending two-thirds of his life being prepared for the last third. How unusual is that? How many of us have that mindset? I'm not going to lie to you. When we started uh, going into ministry, one of the things that occurred to me was like, man, I'm, I'm about to be 40. Like, all the guys that I know that are going into ministry are like 20. So I've literally felt like I wasted almost this first half of my life. And I wrestled with this over and over again going, man, like, I don't have enough time to get everything accomplished. Like, how am I going to do all the things God wants me to do? But I also recognize that, man, I could not be where I am now if I hadn't gone through those other experiences. I needed them. I needed them. One of the most important things about today's story is not the burning bush. It's not how Moses is about to get his calling. It's not about, it's, it, it is this one thing that God desires to be known. He desires that we would know and recognize who he is. That, is. that is the goal. That is the perspective. Many of us wrestle with what God's will is. God's will is not complicated. We make it complicated because 
Well, we're silly. But we make it complicated. How many of us have wrestled with, oh, I, don't, I, need, a jo- I need to figure out what job path I need to go on. I need, I need a career path. Or what ministry should I be dedicating my time to? Right? Or what, what kind of hobbies should I have on the side? How can I get a little bit farther ahead? How can I get a little more success? God's will for us is far more simple. His will for us is that we would be in his presence. That we would know him, experience him. It's a really simple thing. All the other things are circumstantial. If we are content and understand that our fulfillment comes from him, being in his presence, all the other things are outflow. They are. They're just, they're just an outpouring of what's already happening in our life. Just because we have a talent or a skill doesn't mean that God necessarily desires to use that talent right now, that skill today. Just because we know that we have a calling doesn't mean God's ready to fulfill that calling in your life. What he wants is you to be in his presence. The rest of that will come. It might come in the last part of your life. It may only come for a brief moment. But that's not the thing. The thing is the presence of the Lord. Let's look at today's passage, parts of it. We see that Moses (coughs) was serving as a shepherd, and he had come to the mountain of Oreb, right? The mountain of God. This is going to be the same mountain, and we see this later on, that the Israelites are going to come to to worship God. And so God is using Moses' early interactions with him to mirror what's going to happen later. God's going to call his people out of Israel. They're going to wander for 40 years. He's going to bring them to his mountain. They're going to be in his presence. They're going to experience God. He is going to make himself known to his people. And as Moses is there, he sees an angel of the Lord that's in a flame within a bush. Some of us have heard this part of the story. Some haven't. Um, And he looks because he notices that it's on fire, but it's not consumed. Now, fire, I think, is one of the best analogies for God. I really do, and I'll explain some of that in a minute. But, I mean, I think we've all sat around a fire at some point in our life and just kind of stared at it in amazement, right? As it, like, consumes up the wood or whatever. It's, it's, you know, I know men in general, like, we like big fires anyways. Many of us have probably singed an eyebrow or two, um, depending, <laughs> depending on how much gasoline we have put in there, right? Um, and so there, there's, a, there's an innate attraction to fire, I don't know what it is, but if I promise you, if we had a small fire, like a little campfire put out, like if you give it 20 minutes, there's going to be 15 guys around it staring at it and poking it with sticks, probably commenting on how they built it, right? Like, I, I get that. And there's nothing really, I, I mean, we all at this point are super eager for the weather to chill out so that we can have a little fire again, right? I know I am. There's something attractive about a fire. And there's some innate good things about fire, Right? Like, how enjoyable the warmth is when it's cold. And you put your hands up to it and you enjoy that. How, how delightful it is to have that fire kind of flicker and, and stare off into it at night. Just kind of let your thoughts go and just stare into the abyss of that it is. How enjoyable the food is when you've cooked off of it. We're going to enjoy some of that today. It's cooked over some delicious fire and smoke. But fire's not all good, is it? Because fire is also dangerous. We teach our kids early on, oh, don't touch fire. My youngest son has found the, la- the matches and lighters in our house, and we had, to all, we had to move them where he could not find them anymore. And he doesn't understand because he's attracted to it, but he doesn't understand the danger that's there. And so we're trying to teach him that. 
Yes, fire is great. Fire is good. Fire is dangerous. And I think the analogy that's being used by the Jewish writers here, that the Holy Spirit was leading up to, that God was using to portray himself to, to Moses, is the same idea. Fire is good, but it is not safe. Right? I mean, we've seen the destruction of fire. We've seen what it'll do to a house. A couple of years ago, a little, I think it was a little over 15 years ago, there was an entire section of 31 that burned down because of a forest fire. Devastating. Many of us are trying to deal with the current wildfires that are happening in Canada. They're getting puffed down all the way down to our parts of the woods. So we know the devastation that comes with fire. We know the danger. And God is much the same way. God is good. C.S. Lewis put it a certain way. He was writing a book. I don't know if you, how familiar you are with C.S. Lewis. He was a great writer. And he wrote a book, a series actually, called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in this book, the lion, his name's Aslan, and he is a Jewish, or he is a Jesus figure. So he's, he's, implore, he's imploring and pulling on the Gospels and, and planting them in the children's books. And there's a little child there, and they're talking about Aslan and how great he is. And the child goes, oh, he's a lion. Well, I hope he's safe. And one of the other characters goes, oh, who said anything about safe? He's certainly not safe. He's good. He's the king, but he is not safe. I think so often we want a safe God. I think Moses wanted a safe God. He wanted a God who agreed with him. He wanted the God to go along with his plans, much like we do. But God's not safe. He's not. I can, I can tell you right now God's not safe. God is, at times, terrifying. God will ask you to do things that are the most difficult things you've ever done. He'll ask you to leave a job. He'll, he'll ask you to sit in your emotions. He'll ask you to bear un, just unbelievable pain. He will not let you be comfortable. He'll ask you to change. But God is good, just like fire. He is good. The things he asks of you are for your goodness and your well-being. The things he has asked of Moses are the same. Moses is drawn to this burning bush, and he goes over to it. And from this bush, the messenger of the Lord says, Moses, Moses, and he goes, here I am. Don't miss that the Lord knew Moses. Part of the shepherding life is that it's, it's very isolated. I think we've all experienced isolation over the last few years, right? Like, that's no fun. There's so much data out there right now talking about the increase of depression, so much data out there talking about the, the amount of isolation that's happening. Our community is dealing with isolation. Some of us don't even, you know, understand it. Maybe you, don't even, you aren't even aware of it. But I know that we're aware of houses that are going up everywhere, right? And in those houses are people who've moved and left their family, left all their friends, left their career to come here. And what they have instead found, which was the joys that they were hoping to find in retirement, they have found isolation. Isolation is one of the greatest tools of the enemy. And if, just hang with me, because if you don't believe me, I can show you a place in Genesis where it says this. God creates all the things, right? And what does he say after he creates everything? He says it's what? 
says it's good. For those of you who don't know, he even uses a special word called tov, and it's like super awesome, okay? Super good. And God creates all things and says this over and over, just reiterating the point. Man, I created light, and it was good. I created water, it was good. I created animals, it was good. I created people, and it was very good. I'm digging it. And then something wasn't good. He looks at Adam and he makes this statement. It is not good for man to be alone. God's pointing out one of the biggest truths in our lives. We are made for community. We are made to be known. First and foremost, we are made to be known by our maker. He knows us. He knows us. I've used this statement and oftentimes it's, it's, it's not right, but it, it makes me feel a certain way. But I say, like, man, I, when I found Jesus, here's the reality. I didn't find Jesus. Jesus knew where I was the entire time. He found me, right? Like, he, I, I didn't go and just luck into him. He was the one looking for me. He was the one working towards me. He was the one being the burning bush and drawing me toward him. I had some choice in there. I don't know what the level of that is. That's academic talk that lots of people like to get wrapped up in. I know this, that God made himself so attractive that I would find him. But he's the one who did it. He drew me to him. He knew that I needed to be known. We're also to be known with one another. One of the things that I feel like so many Christians struggle with, especially early on, we are super excited to baptize people, to get them saved, to rejoice that, hey, one more soul has been pulled from hell, right? And, and they're on their way to heaven. One of the things we struggle with is how do we build a relationship with these people? How do we help walk alongside? Because the Christian life is difficult. It's hard. We are called to do it together. And we need one another. God calling out, this messenger calling out to Moses by his name is a reminder that we are known. But we're also to be known by others. As Moses tries to walk closer, which is the natural response when someone's talking to you, he's told to stop because this is holy ground. This is set aside. And God quickly tells him who he is. And he starts with very common language that the Jewish tradition would have immediately recognized. This is, we, we, you know, I am the God of your father, of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. Like, this is a common reference point of who God is. But let's be honest. If I were to come up to you and introduce somebody and be like, hey, this is uh, a friend of a friend of a friend, it doesn't feel like I know them very well, does it? Like, it's, it's almost off-putting. Like, hey, I want to introduce you to somebody. This is Mr. Charles. Um, I know Mr. Charles from my child's son's father. They go to school together. Like, you, you don't know what the relationship is there. That doesn't feel intimate. This is more of a marker of, I am the God who made a promise to Abraham. I am the God who made the promise to Israel. I am the God who made a, a, a promise to Jacob. And then... The Lord says to Moses that I have observed the misery. I've seen the miseries, the, actual, like, uh, the, 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 the uh, translation that many of you may see. I've heard their crying, and I know about their suffering. This verse should be the greatest comfort that any of us should have. 
The previous chapter ends, or the, the previous section ends, where the people of Israel have begun to cry out to God, to their God, about the pain that they are experiencing, the oppression that they are enduring, the, the, the amount of, of, of disdain that they're being treated with. And it says in there that God sees, hears, and knows them. And he repeats it here to Moses. And we should find comfort in this. We told you earlier, right, like God's not safe. <laughs> he's going he's gonna to ask you to, to do and experience and go through things. I often tell people being a Christian is not a, a pass. Like just because you're a Christian doesn't give you a free pass on anxiety or depression today. Like you're going to get to experience some more of that. It, 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 if anything, it just gives you comfort and a hope that's, not out, that's no longer you. And that's the thing. Because we have a God who's intimately involved with us. First, he sees us. He sees the things we're going through. He sees it. He knows what you're dealing with. And everybody's dealing with something, right? SGO, everybody's got stuff going on. We all got something we're dealing with. And God is aware of it, intimately aware of it. And he hears us. I don't know about you, but one of the things I used to struggle, especially when I was in a time in my life where I wasn't following God, and I was told to do the, like, the prayers, and it always felt like my prayers could never get past the ceiling in the room. Like it was just falling on deaf ears. And I would be frustrated with that. Because I'm like, I, I, I don't feel like God's doing anything. I can't see he's moving. I, I, am I supposed to feel something? The Bible tells us over and over again that God hears us. He hears us. I look back on those prayers and I am astonished of how many times God came through and I was too ignorant and too impatient to recognize it. Times where I prayed to God knowing that my life wasn't given to God. I didn't want to give God my whole life. That was way too, too much. And yet God was still intimately involved. Even as I was a sinner, God was making a way for me. And lastly, it says that God knows about their suffering, that he knows them. There is nothing worse than when you're going through a tragedy to tell someone to tell you this, and this, this, I've heard this, and I've sometimes have accidentally, unfortunately, said this. Oh, I know what you're dealing with. That's the most off-putting thing, is it not? Like, like, no, you don't. And even if you do, I don't care that you do. Like, I'm struggling right now. I don't want to hear those words. But we serve a God who has experienced those things. We serve a God who has hurt, who has been oppressed, who's been beaten. We serve a God who does know what it feels like to be tempted, to be frustrated, to live out this life. And because God knows these things, and because he's seen and heard these things, he has a plan to redeem these things. For the Israelites, it says that he has come down to rescue them with the, from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them to the land, to that land that is good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The territory that belongs to all of these Zites.
See, God doesn't just promise reprieve, right? He doesn't promise just relief. God gives us mercy and grace. That's what he was going to do. He was a complete redemption. And so many of us get caught up in this momentary temporal thing, and we forget that there is a coming full, complete redemption. One day there will be no sickness. One day there will be no hurt, no depression, no, no anxiety. And we look forward to those things. But that doesn't eliminate the now, right? Like, not completely. But we do have a hope for that. We hold a hope for those days. And God starts this with a simple mission. And he tells this mission to Moses. And he says, I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. God is a sending God. Part of the reason that we're here today, part of the reason why we're fighting the good fight and, and planting a church is because God has sent his people. And, and here's the reality. This is the thing that I, I want every believer to understand, and those who are wrestling with a belief to understand about believers, is that you are sent. You are being sent as we speak. You are not here to consume. You are not here to be comforted or to be, to, to, to be you know, just encouraged or to have a, a great motivational speech so that the rest of your week goes smooth. You are sent. You are being sent. God has placed people in your life today that are dealing with the shackles of sin who are dealing with depression, anxiety. They're dealing with pain and hurt. They're dealing with loss and grief. They're questioning what they believe. And you are the mission. You are the thing that God has put in purpose for their life. And I know that might be hard to believe. And I might, you might get overwhelmed. I used to. When I first took the job at uh, North Myrtle Beach, I was a coach, and they found out that in, high, in college and in high school, I was part of FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And so they had lost their FCA program for a few years, and the AD approached me, and he kind of voluntold me that I was going to do the FCA. And I remember coming home, and I was super depressed. Because at this point in my life, I don't believe I was saved. Just being honest. I did a lot of Christian things. I was a really good fake Christian. I'd go to church enough times a year you wouldn't really ask too many questions. I read my Bible most days, weirdly enough. I would pray when I needed something. Just being honest. And I remember thinking, man, if I'm the FCA guy, everybody in the school is going to be watching me. And so every time that I do something stupid or just not Christianly, if I'm not nice one day, if I have a bad day, they're going to judge me. I really don't want to do that. I don't want to be that person. And I know that that's oftentimes we can feel that way. That's not the thing that God cares about. First off, we all know this. There's enough social media out there. We're going to get judged anyways. Right? Like, we know that. Whether you like it or not. And sometimes it's by Christian people. Sometimes it's not. But it, regardless, you're going to get judged. The second thing, though, is it doesn't matter what those people think. Because you're not perfect. You could be the greatest Christian you know. And you're still not perfect. I'm the farthest thing I know from perfect. I make stupid mistakes all the time. I, I'm not slow to anger as much as I would like to be. 
I have to apologize a lot. I'm sorry, Aaron, for many things. But you know the thing. <laughs> I yell at my kids sometimes. I lose my temper. Like, it's a reality. And I wish I could stay up here and be like, man, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing, you know, I'm getting sanctified and killing it every day. I'm not. I struggle. I deal with depression. I deal with worry and doubt. No one's perfect. We had one perfect person. Thank the Lord. Thank Jesus, right? Because he's enough. So that you don't have to be. Because in God's plan, God does the work. Think back to Moses, right? Before, Moses wanted to do the work. He wanted to use his strong right hand, and he was going to free the, the Israelites, and he was going to come over and take over the, the, the Israelites and attack the Egyptians and run them out of town. That was his plan. That's why he murdered an Egyptian and buried him in the sand. Turns out that that's not what God was planning. So now God's telling him his plan. He's like, all right, you've spent 40 years cooling off. Now we're going to do it my way. But of course, Moses does like most of us, and he goes... Who am I? Who am I that I would go talk to Pharaoh? See, the last time that Moses was going to go interact with Pharaoh, Pharaoh wanted to kill him for killing the Egyptian. That's why he's a fugitive. That's why he lives in the desert. He says, so who am I that I should do this? How many of us have ever questioned that one before? I promise you, if you've dealt with your calling, if you begin questioning anything that God's asked you to, you will come across that who am I question. I fought and fought and fought against my calling to ministry. I didn't, I didn't want to do this. This, is, this did not seem like me. Someone was like, oh, I think you might make a great pastor. And I'm sitting there going, every pastor I know I am not like. I look terrible in a suit. Like, I do. I look like a box. Okay? I do. It's awful. I sweat profusely, so if I have that many clothes on, I'm literally dripping out of my hands. It's this is the most awful thing you've ever seen. I don't have any kind of couth. I don't walk around super holy all the time. I can't. I just I don't have it. I'm I'm almost like unabashedly accurate about who I am. It's just who I am. I've been humbled and broken so many times that I'm amazed that God would even have anything to do with me, much less think that I would be worthwhile to be used. But I look around and I realize, man, like that's all of us. Like that's exactly who God wants to use. I read in his word and I used to glorify all of these guys like Moses and David and Samson. And then I realized like, man, those dudes were messed up. Like they were really messed up. And yet God would use them over and over again. And he does the same thing for us. Like he, he is so in love with us. Like he so des just desires a relationship with us, and he just, from the outpouring of who he is, we get, we get to be a part of this plan. And it's beautiful. And then Moses says the next thing. The next question is, well, what do I tell the other people? Which I totally get. There was a time in our life when we were trying to plant this church, and COVID had happened, because we we decided to plant a church at the beginning of 2020, and no one saw what was going to happen three months later. And I remember just asking God every day, like, Where, what congregation do we have? Like, who am I supposed to even preach to if I'm supposed to preach? Like, I didn't know what to do. And I get what Moses is saying. The last time Moses interacted with the Israelites, they basically were like, what, are you going to kill us too? Are you going to murder us and bury us in the sand too? You're, you're a murderer. Like, get out of here. We don't trust you. The Israelites weren't ready. 
Egypt wasn't ready, and Moses wasn't ready. But now, God has made them so. God's timing has come to fruition. And so God does something very unusual. He makes himself known to Moses. And he tells Moses, I am who I am. You can tell the Israelites that I am sent you. Now, this I am statement, many of us might know this. If you don't, it's cool. The, the assumed pronunciation is Yahweh, right? This is where we get the word Yahweh and Jehovah from, by the way. And what it really means is it's, it's an offshoot of the word of the verb to be. I know, most of us, like, I, I had to learn all this. Like, this wasn't, I almost failed Greek the first six weeks that I, didn't, I couldn't remember English. So, um, but it turns out to be is a very important theological thing. So, I'm going to explain it. To be means that always has been, currently is, and always will be. It's an existence that doesn't have either end. Eternity. God, who has always been, who is, and who will always be. Up to this point in this story, when God is referred to, he's called Elohim, which just means God. That would be like saying teacher or doctor, right? There's no specificity. It's just God. But earlier on, in those moments with Abraham, with those moments where, where, with, with, um, with Isaac, when their relationship was so close with God, he would, he would tell them who he was, and he would use that word. But it had been so long in the Jewish history. It had been 400 years of oppression, 400 years cut off from their beliefs and their traditions, 400 years of leadership drawn awry, experiencing a whole other culture, a whole other religion. They had forgotten God's name. And so God's reintroducing himself to his people. And he's doing so by telling them, I have always been, I will be, and I will continue to do so for eternity. That is who I am. And this all-encompassing, always existing, forever and ever God has heard the cries of the oppressed. And he is sending him a rescuer. It should sound familiar if you've heard the gospel. Because that's exactly what God did for us. He heard the cries of the people. He recognized their failings. All of us have been in, 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 in chains of sin before. All of us have been entrapped by sin. And we were unable to escape. There's nothing I could do, there's nothing you could do to escape your own sin. That's why Jesus had to die. God sent a rescuer for us who came and bore the weight of all of that sin and paid the cost that we couldn't afford to pay ourselves so that we could be freed. And that should be a joyous thing. That's why when we read Exodus, this isn't just a story of when God worked at one time. This is a reminder of how God works every day in our lives. Every day God is freeing me from sin. Every day I'm reminded of how much Christ means in my life and what it means to truly follow after him. Every time that we go into the stories, God is making himself known to us once more. That's a wonderful and great thing that a God of the universe, the God who created billions of galaxies, 
Not only did he create you, but then he was like, hey, I wanted you to know me. This is who I am. That is an overwhelming and awesome thing. And we should never take that lightly. God revealing his intimate name here should remind us of the intimate kind of relationship he desires. I say this often, and as I get ready to close and I'll have our worship team come up. This is something important that you should know, that God loves you and he wants a relationship with you. And that looks like an intimate relationship. An intimate relationship. Not just, oh, this is the God I pray to. Oh, this is the God that gives me things. This is the God that knows me by name and I know him by name. This is the God that Jesus taught us to refer to as Abba, Father. That same God. That's the kind of relationship he wants. So the challenge here is reflection this week. What kind of relationship do you have with God? Do you know God in that intimate of a way? Do you know him? Do you cry out to him more than when it's just convenient, more than just when you need something? Do you talk to him? Do you regularly run to him just to be in his presence? Is he enough? Because if you aren't, there's good news. It's not that hard. You can do it today. You can run to him today. Because he's calling you out. You didn't just show up here by accident. The good thing is that if you are, then he's sending you to people who aren't. One of my favorite quotes is that missions exist because worship doesn't. So there's someone in your life that God has given to you that you are the sending person for. Someone that's not going to respond to me preaching to them. They're not. They don't know me. But they're going to respond by the way you love them, by the way you care for them, by the way you talk about God around them. And I want to encourage you. I want, to know, I want you to know that I'm praying for you as you do these things. And trust me, God knows and hears when you say, who am I? And God's response is, you are the person I made for this job. Let's bow our heads. Thank you for listening to the River's Edge Church Podcast. We want to encourage you to like and follow so that we might reach others with God's good news. You can hear more messages like this at www.theriversedge.church. Have a blessed weekend.